Okay, it has turned over to 4 o'clock, so why don't we go ahead and get started. Thanks to everybody who chimed in and introduced yourselves. And if you didn't get a chance to talk now, we invite you to do so later on. We really want to hear from you and hear your stories about networks and how you can put great advice today to work. So my name is Rebecca Stone. I'm with the Orton Family Foundation and Community Matters, and you are joining us for today's Community Matters conference call on networks. We're glad to have you all. These calls are inspired by the Orton Family Foundation, and we're thrilled to have on the line two wonderful speakers today, Dana Jackson from the Network Center for Community Change in Louisville, Kentucky, and Keith Hansen, founder of iNeighbors.org and an assistant professor at the University of Pennsylvania's Annenberg School for Communication. We're going to kick it over to them in a few minutes and hear what they have to say, but before we do, I just wanted to go through a few housekeeping notes. So the first one, I think a lot of you have already joined us in the Google Doc for today's call. If you haven't done so, we invite you to open that link. You'll see a section where you can put in your own questions and chime in on discussion, and that's really a huge part of the call. So if you do have a question for our speakers today or even for other people who have just joined us on the line, please type it in there. Please be sure to include your name, and that way I can call on you and open up the line for you to ask the question yourself and join the discussion. That's really the easiest way to manage it since we do have a lot of people listening in on the line. And we also invite you to add your own notes and thoughts there. Uh, we have someone who will be taking some notes on the line today, but please write down whatever captures your interest. And if you have an answer to a question, please feel free to add it. Dump in links and resources and whatever you think might be of use to the people on the call. This is a living document. It's going to be available for you all to use and access after the call is over. We'll make it available to you along with a podcast afterwards. But we hope it will remain a resource where you can come and continue to get information and ideas from today's call. Just one other quick note. A lot of you are already on mute, which is wonderful. Thank you. If you haven't done that, please do so. Just press star six on your phone. You can press pound six later on to unmute yourself if you want to talk, and that will really help us cut down on background noise. So with that, I'm going to turn it over to our two speakers to give a quick introduction to who they are and what they know about, which will hopefully pique all of your interest, and then we'll dive into some questions and answers. So let me start by turning it over to Dana Jackson. Great. Thank you, Rebecca, and thank you for having us on the call. Um, my name is Dana Jackson. I'm the Executive Director of the Network Center for Community Change, and we are a network of uh, about 4,300 people who have signed on to make positive change in our community. Uh, I want to say that I also have with me on this end of the phone Jenny Jean Davidson and also Anthony Smith, who are with NC3 as well, because what we believe about a network, by definition, it's not about one person. So please feel free to, as we move forward, to uh, ask questions uh, not only to me but to them as well, and they'll jump in. Rebecca asked us to talk a little bit about what we do um, and kind of tee up the conversation. As I said, the network is really about making positive social change. What we believe is connections matter, and we believe that um, – it really is about connecting people to people, people to opportunities, and people to senior level decision makers. Our network uh, has grown from a handful of folks to well over 4,000 people. Um, it's you know not a social club. It really is about making positive change and beginning to affect 
the trajectory of um, the tra trajectory for marginalized people in historically uh, disenfranchised places. We focus on quite a few things. The first is obviously community organizing. We believe a network approach. Uh, and when I say network, I don't mean like, you know, only Twitter and Facebook and things of that nature. Those, I think those are important tools. Um, I really mean network organizing, which is based on social network theory. We really have a push that is around using network-centric practices uh, for the purpose of uh, employment, asset development, and protection for um, making sure that there are more ed equitable education outcomes and for creating safe and stable neighborhoods. Um, we, this year alone, have placed about 256, 260 folks in employment. Um, we are big on data and use data to create value in our network so that people who are in the network, network members, can use that data to make change. A couple of highlight or teaser things that have occurred over the short term have been network members starting girls empowerment groups and network involved in conversations around uh, redistricting uh, for our Metro Council. Uh, we've done a ton of stuff around community mapping that is helping to change the landscape uh, for marginalized communities. Um, we are working mightily and tirelessly to help um, young people in elementary school really be proficient readers, and those who are at the high school level have a strong finish in high school and go on to college. We also have a, a strong strand that is around leadership. We do a Network 101 class, which is learning about network organizing, and we also do a network organizing institute where folks from the community or from anywhere really around the country can come and learn the practices and principles. Uh, we have a theory of change that we can talk about a bit later that we animate in everything that we do. Um, and we are now really getting into the issue of food justice, so we're looking to learn a ton about that. But it really is a core of people who come together uh, to push on outcomes, and uh, we are extremely measurement-driven to boot. So that's who we are. That's a high-level view of the work that we do, and I'm hoping that we can talk more deeply. That's great. Thank you so much, Dana. These guys do such impressive work down in Louisville, and we'll certainly have time to dig into their stories and hear a little bit more about the outcomes. So if you find yourself with questions for Dana or wanting to learn more about the network organizing approach or how it's working for them, I encourage you to please get into the Google Doc, enter some questions there, and let us know what you want to talk about. So let me turn it over to Keith now for an introduction, and then we'll do questions. Hello, everyone. Thank you for having me here to share today. Uh, I'm Keith Hampton. I'm currently a faculty member at the Annenberg School for Communication at the University of Pennsylvania. To give you some idea of my history before that, I was a faculty member uh, in the Department of Urban Studies and Planning at MIT. Uh, I am a little eclectic, and I think I come at this from a very different place than Dana does, which probably makes us a good team for this, for this discussion. Uh, I'm primarily a researcher. Uh, I am not a community activist by training. Uh, although I do operate a website called iNeighbors.org, 
which is a site that allows uh, people in any community in the United States or Canada to create a digital community that maps onto their geographic community. And we encourage folks to use the site and to limit themselves to neighborhoods of about 500 or so homes, maybe a 1,000 homes, but certainly not the size of a city or a town. To give you some idea of how that site is being used, uh, we have about 100,000 users right now. Uh, we're adding new users every day. Uh, I'm looking at the site right now, and so far today we've delivered about 80,000 messages between neighbors in different communities uh, across the country. Uh, the distribution of those people ranges from uh, people living in homeowners associations and suburban communities to people living in rural communities. And about a third of our site are people located in uh, what we call the 20th percentile for the most disadvantaged communities uh, in the United States, and that's those areas of the highest in poverty and racial segregation and unemployment. Uh, in addition to iNeighbors, I've done uh, extensive research on social networks, uh, and as data has already eloquently expressed, it's not just about Facebook. Uh, as I tell my students, if uh, the, the clock, a one-hour clock, was the history of social networks, Facebook could be about a minute on that clock. It has a long methodological and theoretical uh, background. Uh, so in the last couple of years, uh, including this year, we've released ports, reports with the Pew Charitable Trust on uh, the state of social isolation in America, uh, the state of people's core networks, and how things like Facebook as well as other technologies are influencing the diversity of relationships we have, our interactions with neighbors, our interactions with people in public spaces, and our interactions with those people who are closest to us. In addition, this summer uh, I partnered with State Farm and Harris Interactive uh, to release a report on the state of neighboring uh, in America, and I'd be happy to talk about that as well. Um, but I think that gives you kind of a good background of at least the breadth of things that I'd be happy to speak about, and I uh, look forward to hearing from you. Great. Thanks so much, Keith. And I think you said it best. It's wonderful to have two speakers on the line with such different experiences and a real breadth of knowledge about networks today. So a lot of directions we can take this conversation. Again, I urge folks to get into the Google Doc, um, add some questions and some ideas there, and we'll do as best we can to cover all of it today. So I do want to start at a pretty basic level. As you've both alluded, there are a lot of different ways people interpret the word network, and it means a lot of different things. Um, Facebook and Twitter are certainly on that list and top of mind for a lot of people today, but that's only the beginning. So Dana talked a little bit about it. I'd love to turn this back to you both. Um, there's a lot of research and a lot of understanding out there about network theory. Could you both? hit us with maybe two or three critical things you think it's important for community builders to know about networks. What are the most important pieces of knowledge or understanding that we should be starting out with today? Keith, do you want to get us started on that? I'd be happy to, and I can certainly start with one. I mean, there's one kind of critical misconception about networks that is pervasive not just amongst you know academics, but everybody who thinks about community. Uh, you know, you talk about, you know, how do we define networks? Well, for me, it used to be how do we define community? And I used to find community as networks, and now we're having problems defining networks, which <laughs> is interesting. Nonetheless, the, I think the biggest misconception in the study of networks is that strong ties are the only thing that matters. So much emphasis is placed on intimacy and having really close relationships with those who are nearby and this importance of bonding and having you know frequent in-person regular contact with a real core group of people 
who can provide you lots of support. The reality is that most local, particularly community interactions, were never like that, and they're certainly not like that today for most of us. Uh, having you know a broad network of people who are loosely connected uh, and can be organized efficiently, effectively, uh, on a spur of a moment, uh, is much more important for many of the outcomes I think we're all interested in in terms of empowerment and collective action and mobilizing for social change uh, than is having a small network of really close social ties. So if there was one misconception, I think that that would be uh, the one I would focus on. Great. That's a right. Right. And, and I'd like to uh, piggyback uh, onto that. And I absolutely agree with Keith. And I think that for us it really was an iterative process that when we first started doing the work that we do and started thinking about networks, it really was more of a, oh, yeah, you know, people and tightly uh, connected. And we just, you know, there's a place for that. But what our network really is about are, you know, again, it's a bunch, it's a bunch of people and everybody's not, you know, as close as close can be because the reality of it is for each of us on our call, on this call, we have networks where we have some tight um, social ties and we have some loose affiliations. Uh, our network really believes that it, it's okay to come and go. You don't have to be tightly uh, tied one to the other. It's important that people can get what they need from the network and give what they want to give to the network. They can come. They can go. It really is about uh, what value proposition is within the network that draws people to um, to the coming to the spaces where we come together. Great, thanks so much to Jane and Keith. Those are two really important points to keep in mind. I think as we launch into the rest of the conversation today, and if other people have more to time in with there, please feel free to. Add your notes. Uh, one procedural note, if you've been following along in the Google Doc, you may have noticed we just lost a bunch of text, um, some notes that we've been dumping in and the beginning of questions. So if you are in there trying to type something and think you may have by chance deleted it, please see if you could hit undo on your computer. And if not, we'll just pick back it up. Um, I think there was at least one question on there, so we'll try to jump back in and find that again. Um, I wanted to take another approach. We started a little bit theoretical there. I personally find sometimes the best way to understand networks and the power of them is to hear about examples and stories. So I wanted to toss it back to Dana and Keith and see if you could each tell us a story about how the network has created change in your community or your case, one that you're working on or one that you just happen to know about. Sure. Um, I can... I can kind of lead us off. There are many. Um, so um, one story, I'll, I'll tell a couple from a couple of different uh, places. Uh, we have a workforce pipeline, and that workforce pipeline originally was to one of the major healthcare employers in town. Um, we had a network member who uh, actually was working on her GED, finished her GED, uh, got connected to the workforce pipeline, uh, started at one of the hospitals, I believe, as a CNA, went back to school to get uh, her nursing degree, uh, stayed connected to the network, both um, both her and her daughter, 
uh, and really worked within the network and our partnership with the hospital. We had uh, what was called a post-employment coach uh, who helped uh, our network member really kind of navigate the uh, employment environment. And to make a long story short, she graduated with a BA in nursing and now is an oncology nurse. Um, you know, that's just one story, but what we know about that partnership and network members who were within our pipeline, their retention rates relative to employment were higher, um, just better outcomes all around. Uh, there's another story about a young lady who really had uh, been kind of connected to community, but just kind of sitting back and seeing, okay, what is this thing? Uh, and who are these people, and kind of why do y'all keep showing up in my community with these T-shirts on and, and talking to people? Um, she got connected to the network. Uh, she employed with a local um, what do you call that? community center, has become uh, what we call in our network a power member, which means that she's gone through Network 101 and some of the leadership training. She brings a ton of value uh, from her lived experiences, to the network, and what she decided that she wants to do relative to giving back is to start a girls' empowerment group called Always Sisters. She's done that. She started a, a hip-hopper size um, program, and she was actually featured in the New York Times, I guess that was probably about 18 months ago, uh, for how she has really just become such an agent of change for the community uh, that she lives in and serves. Well, I'd be happy to uh, to follow that with an example from uh, the I Neighbors Project uh, to give you some kind of context of where that project came from. Uh, it results from a series of studies that I did uh, first outside of Toronto and then outside of Boston, where we looked at what would happen if we gave very local neighborhoods access to the internet and a kind of series of very simple communication technologies, things like a neighborhood email list that would allow them to communicate. Would they use it? Uh, would they, you know, as a result of their technology, become more engaged with each other, less engaged with each other? Uh, and the result of that study was uh, early on we found that certain types of neighborhoods grabbed onto the Internet for local engagement, and those types of communities that grabbed onto it were the exact same type that we would expect to have really great social capital to start with. Neighborhoods that we would expect to have a really good infrastructure for social networking use the Internet to kind of further advantage their ability to connect locally. And the outcome was that for neighborhoods that are using the Internet as kind of a local medium, uh, each person in that community who was using it was gaining about four relatively weak social ties at the neighborhood level each year that they were online. Uh, but a possible outcome that we had was that those specific neighborhoods that were grabbing onto it, those that were already uh, very advantaged in terms of their social capital, we were a little concerned that this might represent a trend where the Internet was not just creating a digital divide, but in fact expanding the divide. I mean, so much of the digital divide is already existing socioeconomic inequalities, but this was a real kind of network divide. The idea that perhaps really advantaged communities are already doing well in terms of their networks would do even better as a result of the Internet. And those communities that were disconnected, where a large segment didn't have Internet access, would not only not have access to this technology, but would experience some sort of a network divide where they would, in fact, have fewer and fewer local social ties. Well, 
people in more advantaged communities would have more and more. And one of the ideas we wanted to explore in our neighbors was that if we put this tool out there that allowed any community to form a digital neighborhood that mapped onto their geographic neighborhood, would we see that same trend where only the truly advantaged are taking advantage of the technology and building local networks? And we were surprised and extremely happy and excited to see that, in fact, that's not the case. As I mentioned, about a third of our of our communities are in the bottom 20th percentile for disadvantage. And what makes this extremely exciting is that, uh, you know, these communities are the types of communities that we would think of as first digitally disengaged, people who are less likely to have access at home to the Internet, and also to have a real network disadvantage. Context is so important when it comes to networks. If you don't live in an environment where people are available to form new social networks, you know, you could be a social butterfly and you'll still never make another friend inside that community. And that's traditionally the type of networks that exist in these kind of disadvantaged communities. Great for strong social ties, you know, if you need to borrow $50, if you need, you know, emergency childcare, you can probably find it quickly. But there's not an infrastructure for weak ties, for mobilization, for collective action, for enabling kind of long-term social change. And what we found is that those communities that are able to use something like iNeighbors to form a new kind of digital network, it eases communication. It makes communication safe in ways that it wasn't before. And we have some really good examples of how communities are using that to fight problems with local drugs, to fight problems with crime, to deal with, you know, simple things like postal mail not getting delivered, and even providing networks for kind of informal support as well. That's great. Thanks so much to you both. I know we have a bunch of people on the line with some experience in working on networks in their own communities. Is there anyone else who wants to jump in on this question and share a story about how it's working for you? If you want to come off mute, you can hit pound six on your phone. Well, if you do want to jump in later on, please feel free to do so. We'll try to give people more opportunities to do that. I want to turn to a couple questions we have cropping up in the document now. We have one on here about the network organizing approach, which Dana mentioned as a specific approach they're using in Louisville, um, how it works. And this is something I'm always curious about as well. Dana, I wonder if you could talk a little bit more about exactly what that approach is, how you do it, what it looks like when you're doing this work on the ground. Sure. What I'm going to do is I'm going to get us started, and then Anthony Smith, who is our director of network organizing, will will say uh, a few words about it. But network organizing uh, is really an approach that is about creating intentional space for relationships to form and for opportunities uh, to be taken advantage of. It really is about uh, creating an environment where people can give what they have to give and also get what they need. Um, it's highly based on relationships and highly based on um, the use of um, those relationships coupled with things like data to make uh, sustainable change. So, Anthony? Yeah, and it's really about helping folks find their voice and using their voice to change. So I think, as Dana said, it's really about those relationships and everybody using their networks to help other folks get to where they need to get to. So it's about creating space uh, and really connecting folks to each other so that the folks that are connected can get out of the way, right? So 
we played a role really the connector. So really saying to somebody who has a need and somebody who has this thing, how do we connect you all and let you all get to what you need to get to and then move the person out of the way? The other network organizing uh, that is a little bit different is that it is um, really about accessing information and also kind of distributive leadership. Um, there isn't a, I'm the leader and now you follow me, you know. Leadership kind of switches and it depends on what the uh, area of interest is or the topic is. Um, I use the word intentional a lot because network organizing is about intentionally creating spaces for good stuff to happen. Uh, we have an event that's a monthly event that's called Network Organ uh, that's called Network Night, where network members come out and we uh, kind of fellowship together, we eat together. In the space, there might be uh, the president of the community college or you know um, employers who are looking for um, uh, uh, workers, but it's not a you know, hey, I've I've got what I've got the resource and you have the need. It really is about creating an environment where people get to know each other first on a human level, and then begin to uh, tackle tough problems uh, together. It's extremely open, um, and it looks a little bit like um, chaos, but it really is not chaos. It uh, is designed to 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 be loose. Um, and kind of being I think we're losing you a little bit. There's a lot of background noise. Are you still with us? Yes. Can you hear me? I can, yeah. We're still getting some noise. But. Yeah, we hear that too. It sounds like wind or something. Okay. Weird. Maybe someone else's line, so if you're listening in and you may have background noise, please do put yourself on mute by pressing star six, and hopefully we'll have that go away soon. Were you still going, Dana, or were you finished? No, that I, I think we're done. Great. That was really helpful, and thanks, Anthony, for jumping in and explaining, too. And If you are more interested in the network organizing approach, I'd encourage everyone to go back to the Community Matters website and take a look at last year's Strong Communities Competition, the network organizing approach, and Dana and Anthony and another colleague of theirs were winners in the Strong Communities Competition last year and just had an amazing entry for their work. Um, Keith, I wanted to toss it back to you and see how that resonated. I, your work is not officially labeled network organizing, at least to my knowledge, but how does that resonate with what you do or what you've seen in the field? Oh, I'm sorry, I'm having a terrible time hearing uh, over over that noise. Uh, but I think you asked uh, about network organizing and uh, how that resonates with my work. Uh, and certainly, I mean, I'm not a network organizer, but I'm a uh, network analyst by training, uh, which means that I'm very interested in how we measure networks and how we understand how the structure of networks is related to outcomes like political engagement and trust and tolerance. And I can tell you some things about that, uh, such as, uh, you know, certainly those people who have, uh, you know, much more uh, diverse networks, they're certainly more trusting, they're more tolerant, they're more politically engaged. Uh, if we look at something as simple as Internet access and non-access and the 20% of people right now who remain 
uh, without any kind of Internet connectivity uh, in America, uh, and we look at the structure of their networks and we compare them to those who are online, just a simple comparison, uh, I mean, those people who are connected, they, they tend to know on average uh, over 700 people in their active networks. Uh, those people who aren't online, they tend to know about 500 people in their active networks. Uh, those people who are connected tend to have networks that are magnitudes of more diverse. Uh, they tend to have more strong relationships. They tend to have better access to social support. Uh, when there's an emergency, some sort of national emergency, such as, say, a hurricane or an earthquake, these are the people that get resources first, they get it fastest, and they don't have to wait for kind of FEMA helicopters to arrive. Uh, they're able to get it from their neighbors and other people who are who are locally available. That's great. It does seem like there's a lot resonating with traditional organizing approaches and a lot of the community building techniques that we talk about a lot in this series and I know a lot of people are working on, but just doing it in a little bit of a smarter, more efficient way. Um, I want to turn now to another question we have in the Google Doc and change topic a little bit. Jordan, are you still on the line with us? Yes, I am. I just unmuted. Great. Do you want to ask your question and talk a little bit about what you're doing? Sure. Um, I guess I, I should give some background information. Um, I work at Rural Employment Opportunities in Helena, Montana, and we are developing a new program. It's a kind of a job networks and financial education program targeted at low-income workers, job seekers, moderate-income workers and their families. And we are trying to uh, generate interest and build a space, kind of like what you're talking about, that intentional space for connections to happen so that job seekers and workers can come together. It's looking like monthly right now to share information, share resources, help each other find jobs, and, and kind of find local solutions to what's going on in their communities. Um, but some of these kickoff events I'm doing the initial interest appeared to be there, but it's very hard to get people to come out to the events. And I was wondering, uh, through my research, I guess it was first connections, but now NCCC was a great model I looked at, and I'm not really finding a good model for rural communities. I'm wondering if you had any advice for organizations trying to build these networks in rural areas, very rural areas like in Montana. <laughs> Love to turn that over to anyone who wants to jump in with an idea. Keith or Dana, I don't know if you have thought. So, Keith, uh, we would love to talk with you a little bit. I'd want to better understand um, uh, kind of your environment. Uh, I have my uh, per uh, perception of rural based on Kentucky, but I'm not so sure that it might align with Montana because Montana is – you know, enormous. Um, I'd like to, I'd love to talk to you more and maybe go through some of um, network organizing principles and practices and how we actually create that space that has people come out. Um, Natasha Cummings, who is our job, our jobs coach, is also on the line. It might be nice for you all to have a conversation offline and maybe translate urban to uh, rural. Um, yeah, we, we'd love to. We'd love to do that. Were you talking to me? You said Keith. You, were you, you were talking to me, though, right? I meant Jordan. Sorry, I just wanted to make sure. Yes. <laughs> Great. Uh, thanks for that, 
Christina. I am still hearing a lot of background noise, so again, if you're just listening in, please do put your phone on mute for us so we can try to cut down on that a little bit. Um, Keith, do you have any expertise on this issue of applying urban solutions to rural areas or any thoughts on how that translates? You know, it's certainly not an area of expertise that I would feel comfortable speaking to. It's nothing that I've done personally. Sure. Okay. Let me throw it out there to others. I know Dana put Natasha on the spot there a little bit. Natasha, I know you're on the line. If you want to jump in, please feel free to with any thoughts here or others who are on the line. Well, I know he was talking briefly about a sort of monthly meeting with network, like with members and um, employers, and that is something that we do. And attendance sometimes can be great, and then sometimes it isn't on both ends. So the, the other areas that we're looking at more closely is creating more like um, mock interview approaches with those employers in our communities so the network members can have a face-to-face -face connection with those employers. Can you all hear me? Yeah, we can hear you. Thanks, Natasha. Okay. Is there anyone else who wants to jump in? I think we did hear at the beginning from a couple of other folks who are working on job networks. I'm curious if anyone else has thoughts on this, working on similar projects to Jordan? on for a moment. Again, if, if you do have ideas or thoughts, please do put them into the Google Docs. Feel free to add your ideas there and toss in some more questions if you want. We'd love to get some more questions coming in for Keith and Dana. Um, one occurred to me as you were all talking, Keith, you've talked a lot in particular about internet tools, and I know that's one of your areas of expertise. Um, Dana and Natasha and Anthony have talked a little bit more about some in-person tools and more low-tech solutions. I'm wondering if you could each jump in with a quick rundown of some of the best tools or uh, processes, methods you know about to help start building connections in communities, whether you're urban or rural. Anyone want to give that a shot? Keith, if you're still with us, I was hoping maybe in particular you could talk about some other online tools. You've talked a bit about iNeighbors. Are there others out there that you've found to be successful for connecting people? I mean, certainly there's a, you know, a breadth of tools that we could use to connect people depending on, on their backgrounds. Uh, iNeighbors is only one. Uh, it's certainly an example, not the, not the only one. Uh, I don't have a good kind of off-the-cuff list of, of all the available tools out there. Um, I can certainly comment, you know, something maybe about the use of, of Facebook and, and those types of tools for community organizing. I mean, I know that one concern that we've had in the past uh, is that tools like that are uh, designed not for kind of narrow channel communication. They're very much a broadcast tool uh, where if you, you know, the information you communicate on Facebook to, you know, a, a set of people that you're very interested in communicating around very specific goals uh, gets broadcast often to a much wider audience than you would intend, and that often can have, uh, you know, not ideal uh, outcomes in terms of, 
uh, trying to focus the discussion and uh, even get people engaged around a topic. So in general, when I talk to, to different groups about uh, organizing local community, I do try to steer them towards platforms that are uh, designed specifically for that task and are directed at communicating amongst a very tight-knit group of people who have a similar outcome uh, based around that common affinity uh, rather than mixing it into uh, some kind of broader tool that tends to speak to multiple audiences at once. Dana and Anthony or Natasha, anyone else feel free to jump in as well. What tools are at the top of your list for connecting people? You've told us about a few, but I'd be curious to hear how you're using online tools in your work and some offline, more traditional tools. This is Anthony again. Uh, we've actually been pushing Twitter a whole lot here as a way to keep the conversation going. Uh, we have been able to create hashtags around Network Night so that folks who can't make it to Network Night can still hear about the resources in the room and still feel like they're a part of the conversation. So we've actually really, really been pushing that on our end and just really, we just actually hosted a Twitter 101 for network members to come in and actually sign up for Twitter accounts so that they can start following us and we can follow them. So it's just another way that we've been pushing it uh, as far as online. And one of the best ways for us to connect to folks is traditionally door to door. So we've been, we are always out in community as well. But we've found Twitter to be very uh, accessible to folks. Sorry, we're losing you a bit again, Anthony. We do still seem to have this background noise, unfortunately. Um, could you just repeat what you were saying at the end? No, I just said we've been using Twitter as a way to keep the conversation going and actually inviting folks into the, our office space to actually set up Twitter accounts for them so that they can stay a part of the conversation. And as we do our monthly events, we also make sure we have a hashtag that goes with that so that folks who can't come are able to uh, follow the conversation and figure out what resources that were in the room and still connect that way. Do you find that works across a diverse group of citizens, not just for yeah. the teenagers with cell phones? Yes. Uh, it's, it's, you know, um, I'm usually the one in our office that is uh, techn technologically challenged uh, and you know, they've been working with me on Twitter, but I've been su surprised when we're at network night to see who's actually tweeting. You know, it's not just uh, the youth in the network. There are, you know, folks who are older than I am, and that feels pretty old. Um, <laughs> to be, I'm just being honest. I also think that um, it's been real interesting, too, right, to think about Who's, who's actually signing up and wanting to be involved in uh, a conversation uh, on Twitter? Like, I've been surprised to, to see which network members are really wanting to learn uh, this new way of communicating, of organizing, of creating community. Uh, it's been actually quite fascinating. And just one more thing, it's also been a good way for us to connect to organization, organization to organization as well, and share information not just here locally, but to some of our uh, folks who we talk to nationally as well, too. So it's been just a good way for conversation to keep going. Folks who we've uh, connected to in different cities can also check in to see what we've got going on real quick on Twitter. Or even, you know, then also sending folks to our uh, uh, sending folks to our website and then also picking up new uh 
uh, reports and manuals and stuff that comes out about the work. So it's just been a great way for us to learn more and share more as well. One thing I, I wouldn't mind ask, uh, adding to this is that, uh, I mean, in our practice, one thing that we've really noticed uh, is the importance of opening up communication channels versus uh, just providing information. It's kind of a long history and kind of the, the community networks literature of providing communities with, you know, new infrastructures to engage that are primarily about just providing them with information. And in our experience, it's just not effective when we compare it to giving communities the tools they need to be able to engage with each other, to be able to work together and enact some sort of change. And in doing that, we've certainly learned that the tools we give to folks, um, we often we work to use the lowest common denominator that we can think of, uh, and often that's just email for us. And even with something as simple as email, the number of our users who cannot consistently remember how to enter their passwords and access a website to get information on a discussion forum is huge, uh, particularly amongst our older constituents and those who are uh, from communities that haven't had as much exposure to these technologies. So I know from our experience, we certainly do try and keep our tools as simple as possible, uh, and we try and enable communication uh, over, uh, you know, broadcasting information. Great point. Um, I would imagine that's really helpful in thinking about the urban-rural question a bit as well. Um, we certainly find in our work at the Orton Family Foundation that the urban communities and suburban communities tend to have a higher level of tech adoption, and in a lot of rural communities, those simplest tools are sometimes the best ways to go. So, um, Keith, I know a lot of your research gets at these questions of technology and new platforms and how it's changing the nature of networks. Um, is there anything interesting out of your research that you'd like to share about that? How are networks changing given this new landscape of communication and tools? Well, Rebecca, it's all interesting. <laughs> of course. <laughs> uh, yeah, I mean, certainly. I mean, there are a lot of misconceptions about there about how new technologies are shaping people's relationships, and we spend a lot of time trying to understand whether there's real empirical data to back up some of these perceptions, you know, things like, you know, people who are using Facebook are becoming socially isolated or people who use new technologies spend more time in their homes and less time out in public. And that's just not consistent what we've found through uh, both, you know, very detailed ethnographic surveys where, uh, you know, often we go and live in communities for a number of years to our observational studies of people in public spaces to our more national surveys that we've done of Americans in general. The finding is just consistent that, uh, you know, people who use these technologies and use them a lot, uh, for the most part, they tend to have more robust networks. They tend to have uh, more close relationships. They tend to have more diverse social networks. They tend to know a larger number of people from a broader range of backgrounds. They're more trusting. They tend to be voting more, going to political meetings more. They're just much more engaged in their communities than those who are using these technologies less or uh, in kind of less diverse technologies or not using it at all. And the same when it comes to participation in things outside of the home. I mean, there's a lot of concern that, you know, we have this image of this teenage boy sitting in his, you know, his white underwear huddled around his computer in the bedroom in the dark and this is where he stays forever. That's just really not the reality of kind of the average person using new technologies. Uh, in fact, people who use these technologies are more likely to volunteer. They're more likely to show up in public spaces. 
to be hanging out at coffee shops, to be going out to eat. Uh, they're, you know, very involved in their communities, very involved in spaces outside of the home. Uh, and for the most part, they have very good and robust networks in comparison to other people. Great. It goes counter to what we hear, especially about teenagers who sit around texting all the time. Um, it's really nice to, to hear that, in fact, that's not the case. Um, we're going to be winding down pretty soon. We have about 15 minutes left. I don't see a lot of other questions in the document, but I want to throw it out again to those of you who are listening on the line. Is there anyone out there who has a question for Keith or Dana or anyone who's been on today? Then you can press pound six to take mute off your phone if you're listening in. And let me jump in with a couple more questions to close it out. And again, feel free to interrupt me if you're listening and just can't get off mute fast enough. Um, so one word Keith and Dana have both used a couple of times, at least, I think, is data. And that's one of the more important concepts here. We tend to get started with these programs sometimes and don't really know how to measure their effectiveness. I was wondering if you could both talk a little bit about how you do that. What is the importance of data and how are you measuring success of network? If either one of you wants to jump in, that would be great. Yeah, I mean, I'm happy to start off. Uh, to me, it's, it's I don't really conceptualize it as measuring the success of networks because success is kind of a, an arbitrary normative term that I'm not sure what that means, but I look for variation in networks and how to measure that. And, for example, on iNeighbors, we're very interested in looking at something we call, or it's called collective efficacy, which is the ability of local communities to rise up, organize, and defend themselves when they're faced with kind of a social problem. And the traditional ways of looking at that are either doing a very detailed social analysis where you literally, you know, present everybody inside a community with a list of everyone who lives there and you ask them to think each other and how often they talk and so on. Uh, and that's often, you know, supplemented with questions like uh, if you, you do a random sample and you ask people, well, if there's a problem in your community, how likely do you think that people would be to gather around this problem and solve it? Uh, we found both of those approaches to be a little bit uh, problematic at times. The bigger network approach is really resource-intensive and difficult to do. The more kind of uh, open-ended question where we ask people how likely they think things are to happen is very subjective. So lately, we've been focusing on analyzing the kind of content of people's discussions on iNeighbors and comparing different types of communities, uh, say, you know, extremely disadvantaged communities to very wealthy communities and seeing if there's something different in terms of how they're having discussions around local problems that we can use to evaluate whether they are uh, able to overcome barriers to collective efficacy. So we look at things like, uh, you know, do they discuss things online and offline as well? Uh, a good measure of closeness and effectiveness in networks is uh, having more than one, uh, you know, medium of communication. Are they just interacting online or are they interacting through through other means? Uh, you know, how formal are the discussions? Do they disagree? Do they come around coherently to different uh, topics over time? Uh, these are just some of the kind of various approaches we use to evaluate success in at least our, our neighbors' communities. That's great. Shana, how about you on the ground? 
Sure, um, sure. Uh, there are a couple of ways that we use data and think about data. Some of it is uh, kind of traditional uh, relative to um, closing the gap between folks who are faring well and what's going on in our neighborhood. Uh, so we, you know, kind of track our data that way. Another way that we use data is um, to take the data, um, connect with network members around areas of interest, have a discussion about, okay, so what is this saying to us? How is this actually showing up in our community? What's kind of the story behind the data? And then if there's an issue or a problem, one of the things that springs to my mind immediately um, is something that's come out of our people's campaign. Actually, there are two things. Uh, network members were having a discussion about food and food justice and food deserts and thinking about where healthy foods are and where, where healthy food options are not. And the are not uh, option was, you know, in many of our network uh, neighborhoods. As a result of looking at that data and really understanding that, um, members got together and really pressed uh, forward on uh, having a kids' cafe, a Dare to Care kids' cafe in one of the neighborhoods uh, to feed the children where there's actually a, a food desert. So we look at the data and we say, okay, uh, was that a success? Were we able to actually do something uh, around that particular issue? The answer is, is yes. Uh, so we do that piece. We also... Um, think about data as the qualitative stories. Uh, what's, you know, what are we hearing from the network? What are we seeing with our, you know, own eyes? Uh, where are we seeing the same thing over and over again? Um, how are network member stories um, kind of, you know, being put out there and, and seeing individual lives change too? One of the things that we're clear about when we think about uh, data and our impact is that we have to look at it on several levels, the individual level, the community level, and then also, um, you know, clearly on the, the system level with some of the uh, work that we're doing around policy. That's great. Really helpful ways of thinking about it, I think, and, and how you can make networks work for whatever issue it is you're addressing. Uh, I think we have about time for one more question, and I see that one more did just come in from Samantha in Red Lodge. Samantha, if you're on the phone, do you want to take yourself off mute and ask your question? You can press pound six if you're trying to get off mute. Let me just go ahead and ask it then, Samantha. You can jump in if you do get off mute and want to chime in here. Um, Samantha's with the Red Lodge Area Community Foundation in Red Lodge, Montana, and she asks, do you have any tips for revitalizing intentional or unintentional social networks that have lost participatory momentum over time? Really great question. Interesting distinction between intentional and unintentional networks to begin with, and then I think this is a common problem that people can see networks lose momentum or stall out a little bit. Um, Dana or Keith, do you want to jump in and address that? Well, I mean, certainly one thing I can suggest, and it, it may be a little bit too late, is that you know, building an infrastructure you know, at the moment is so important to maintaining communication over time. I mean, once the network is lost, it's often lost forever. But certainly this is a tool, an area where a tool like Facebook is you know, really valuable. Uh, I mean, networks that we kind of hoped we had lost, like all those high school friends, are suddenly 
reappearing in ways that we never expected. And we can channel that same type of tool to our advantage in that you know, when we create networks and events and we create Facebook groups that connect these people at that moment in time, uh, then forever uh, these people are with us. And when they post comments or we post comments, uh, it provides an opportunity for kind of spontaneous interaction to keep that network alive and revise network ties that would otherwise go dormant uh, in ways that we never really had before. That's a great suggestion. Dana, how about you? Any advice? Has this problem ever happened for you? Uh, yes. That <laughs> uh, You know, um, yes, the answer is yes. Uh, so my advice would be to really, really examine that network. What, I, what we believe is that people participate in networks that hold value for them. So I would really analyze, you know, what's going on with the network, what's not going on with the network, what do the value propositions look like. Uh, and oftentimes, if you can enrich the value proposition, like kind of the, okay, here's what's in it for me or here's what I'm interested in, this is more available, whatever it is, if you can enrich the value proposition, then you can enrich the network. Great suggestions. Um, and a good segue, we're just about to wrap up here, and I want to kind of take us full circle back. Samantha's question is really about networks that have been around for a while, and they're lagging a little bit in terms of interest. To close out the call, I wanted to ask Dana and Keith to bring us to the start again. If you're listening in and you're interested in just getting going, going home and taking action somehow tomorrow to start using the community networks in your town or get a network off the ground and started, um, where do you even begin? What are a few quick things that people can do tomorrow or even tonight as soon as they get off the call? Dana or Keith, any suggestions for folks? Well, uh, in yep. terms of, of local connectivity, since my expertise tends to mostly focus on local engagement and the neighborhood level, uh, I would say, you know, forget about worrying about building those intimate, long-lasting, uh, close friendships with neighbors that we kind of nostalgically long for. Uh, they're nice when they happen, uh, but if that is what we're looking for and it takes away from opportunities to just have a quick hello with two, three, or four people who live on the same street. Uh, that quick hello a couple times a year, uh, maybe a couple times a month, uh, probably has as much or more value in ways that we don't immediately see uh, in terms of potential for local kind of collective action and organizing uh, types of ties that we don't usually get and types of outcomes that we don't usually get from a smaller number of more kind of close, intimate relationships that are really a bit of, of nostalgia than fact when it comes to American life today. Yeah. Great point and one that we really wouldn't expect. And what's the best peop way people can start trying to make that happen in their own neighborhoods or towns? Uh, saying hello is usually the best way. <laughs> Fair enough. <laughs> Dana, how about you? Um, so uh, I would really echo what Keith is saying, you know, start with a hello and realize that that hello uh, may be the start of something extremely meaningful. Uh, I would say focus on relationships. I, I agree. I don't think that they have to be um, those kind of deep binding ties, but I do think that uh, networks are about relationships. Uh, and I would say think about how you create intentional space 
for people to come together, whether that's face-to-face faith or that's virtual faith, but be intentional. Great advice. Well, we are approaching the 5 o'clock hour here on the East Coast, so we're going to be wrapping up in just a minute. I want to give a huge thank you to Keith for jumping on the line and talking to us a lot about his research and networks, his work with the iNeighbors platform, which is wonderful. And I would add that to the list. If you're interested in getting started, getting to know your neighbors better, uh, and exploring some local connections, check out iNeighbors, which is really a great platform. And thanks as well to Dana and Anthony, Jenny Jean, and Natasha, the whole crew with the Network Center for Community Change down in Louisville. They're doing truly amazing work, and we really appreciate all the lessons and insights you've all shared with us today. And thanks so much to everyone who's joining us on the line. A reminder that the podcast and notes from this call will be available right away. I'll email out to all of you and let you know when, and you can watch our blog as well. And we do have one more call in this series in 2011. The year is wrapping down. So I hope you'll mark your calendars and join us in December for a call on building communities for all ages, how we can start making places that are friendly to young people all the way up to our elders and why that single act can help us address a whole lot of other community issues. So please do join us. Be in touch if you have ideas for other topics or ideas for how we can help you. Our goal is to help you dig into some of these conversations and issues you're struggling with and help you take action. So please do let us know what we can do to help you do that. So with that, thanks again to Dana and Keith and everyone else on the line, and have a great night. Thank you.